Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author of The Patterning Instinct, Jeremy Lent. If you look at indigenous cultures, traditional Chinese culture and modern systems thinking, you see a different way of thinking which is based on a sense of connection. Jeremy will be exploring with us how humans make meaning and through it, construct reality itself. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I was at a dinner in New York. And one of the people in attendance was the former Secretary of State of the United States. And we were having this long, bizarre conversation about the state of voting and media. And it got onto Fox News and how people respond to what they see and believe stuff that's not true. And he suddenly turned to me and said, so... How do you feel now that it has been established beyond any shadow of doubt that democracy was a failed experiment? <laughs> really, I was really taken aback that a secretary of state would call democracy a failed experiment, as if it's like the elites decided uh, one day in the Enlightenment, well, let's see, what'll happen if we let people vote? And now we've gotten to the point that they'll say, oh, well, that doesn't really work. Let's try something else. But even from a, a benevolent perspective, I mean, I can entertain that idea that Fox News and fake news and Facebook and Russian algorithms and all that are so powerful and people are so uh, discombobulated and disoriented and ill-informed that maybe we don't have the capability of even enacting democracy anymore. You know, that we, if we're really trying to choose between Trump and Oprah, um, then there's something going on here that, that this former Secretary of State may be on to it. And what my peers' reaction to this was, was, well, we just have to develop better algorithms. That all of this technology is really, is terrific, but it's being misused. So if there are all of these awful algorithms on 
Facebook or bots on the internet, then all we really need to do is to give people new plugins for their browsers or new algorithms through which to filter their Twitter feeds so that we can counteract what all the bad algorithms are doing and give people something that's more curative, something that's better for them than all of this crap. And I don't really know about that. It feels like, well, what, you're going to now protect us from bad technology with more technology as if you know we we already are taking too many antibiotics so it screwed up uh, our systems and given us uh, uh, super strong bacteria so now we're just going to develop more bacteria fighting drugs to even further weaken our own immune system's ability to fight these things it betrays really a lack of faith or trust in the public's ability to act intelligently. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm saying that's what they're thinking. And this line of thinking goes all the way back, really, to early 1900s, uh, uh, Walter Lippmann, the founder of public relations. What he argued, in a well-meaning, progressive way, was that people really can't be entrusted with making really important decisions about the world, that they need experts to really tell them what to do. Walter Lippmann was the guy who was hired by Woodrow Wilson to get American support for our intervention in World War I. Woodrow Wilson had run for president on a peace platform, and now he decided, no, we've got to go in on World War I, so he hired Walter Lippmann to figure out how to manufacture public consent for what he was about to do. And that's what gave Walter Lippmann the idea that, you know, sometimes we just have to convince the public of things. So his model for government would be that, yeah, we'd elect these leaders, but that the leaders would have a council of experts in some big building in Washington, D.C., the smartest scientists and sociologists and psychologists and all. And those would be the people who would figure out what America would do on any particular situation, whether it built a bridge or dug a hole or fought a war or changed education, did whatever it did. That Council of experts would decide what to do. They would then tell the government what the government should do. And then the government would hire public relations people like Walter Lippmann to engineer consent for those actions. It was a slightly cynical view, I guess, but it was well-meaning. And there was this big argument in the newspapers between John Dewey, who disagreed with Lippmann, and Lippmann himself. And John Dewey was saying he was the, the head of a Columbia Teachers College, a, a great advocate of education. And he was saying that, no, 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 you don't want to just tell people and manufacture their consent. Instead, what you should really do is educate people through the public school system well enough so they can make informed decisions about the fate of their nation, that they could vote intelligently. And that's part of what education was for. And Walter Lippmann and his, his uh, uh, protege, who more people know about, this guy Ed Bernays, who was kind of the father of American advertising, they argued, no, 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 you know, basically people are just kind of too stupid to ever develop that ability. They really, people are nice, but they can't be trusted to vote properly. They can act like a mob and end up voting in some crazy fascist demagogue and just destroying all the institutions that we spent all this time building up. But Dewey said, no, education can work. We can make people smarter and more resilient if we build an educational system that's designed to do that. The problem is our education system's not designed to do that. Our education system moved from being a way to really offer the working class some quality of life, some ability to think. It devolved from that to a way to give the working class more job experience in school. The point of education, and I see it all the time, a lot of people come to, to the college I teach at because they want to get a job. They want to get a better job. So the, the 
education system really just becomes uh, uh, another externality of corporate America. It becomes the job training rather than compensation for a worker's life, which is what education was for. Education becomes preparation for that worker's life. So we're no longer using education to make people genuinely smarter. We're using education to make people better cogs in the machine of industrialism. Even the Ivy Leagues, I mean, it's it everywhere. It's all about compensatory strategies. And that's why even the smart people who come out of these schools, even the ones who are going to the most elite ones and getting the super jobs, they think of it as uh, the, the democratic problem as one of execution and implementation. Okay, let's just fix technology. Let's put an algorithm on top of the algorithm. <laughs> let's... If there's a black box algorithm that's making people stupid and making people's voting really bad, let's just put another algorithm on top of that that will filter the news for them. Because if people are having trouble distinguishing smart news from dumb news or real news from fake news, then we can make an algorithm to do it for them. And I think that that's really just an extension of the Lippmann and Bernays understanding of human beings as kind of too dumb to do this. It's like adding more antibiotics on top of things when the bacteria have already grown too strong as it is. No, I think that the real solution is not to build more technologies that shield people from the obligation to make intelligent choices, from judging the merits of things, but rather build resilience in people. If there are weaponized memes, then I don't think we protect them with weaponized counter memes. I think we protect them by building their immune response. We build our collective cultural immune response to stupidity, to hate, to fascism, to bad news, to fake stories. We can do that. Human beings are still smart enough to engage with the world with autonomy, agency, and intelligence. And our effort, our focus, should be towards fostering that, fostering the strength of humans rather than artificial defense mechanisms that make us still weaker. My name is Damian Williams, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Suzanne Sloman, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seita, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Francis Morope, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Ari Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, author of The Patterning Instinct, Jeremy Lent. Reading The Patterning Instinct is, in some ways for me, like uh, recapitulating my own entire intellectual journey and spiritual journey, really, from the early days when I left the theater because I was so uh, uh, dismayed by its Aristotelian structure and uh, uh, addiction to endings and certainty to my uh, initial excitement and then uh, uh, disillusionment about what interactive technology was going to offer us, to finally the work I've been doing now, looking at what makes human beings, particularly social human beings, special, and what can't be uh, uh, simulated or imitated by algorithms or high-resolution technologies. So you you know, you've you've covered the the gamut. It's as if you know the twenty books I've written are are all in the one book you've written. Plus, you've got the the backing and uh, of the of the, our sort of anthropological and archaeological academic uh, research universe. You know, to to support what you're doing. So you know, first you know, uh, uh, applause and kudos and thank you. For, for doing all this, I, I kind of want to start super simply and in a, in a way that I think most of our audience will, will understand. And that's with, with the whole notion of human beings 
being pattern recognizers, that that's part of what makes us special. I mean, and it feels to me like since really the 1980s and 90s, our commercial media, our social media has changed from almost Aesop style parables and teaching stories to experiences of pattern recognition, whether it was Mystery Science 3000 or The Simpsons or South Park, that the joy of these experiences isn't getting to the end of the story. Do you find that to be the case? In other words, that people are are now, or that our culture is becoming less obsessed with sort of entertainment and pop cultural experiences that give us answers and rather experiences and games and immersions where the object is to do pattern recognition, that we're becoming conscious of it as, a, as an entertainment, as a form of play. Yes. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, what what I see going on in the media is something that obviously you've tracked very closely, Douglas, and it's how basically our our deepest kind of human drives and um, even our hormonal responses are being manipulated to a greater and greater degree. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, in terms of pattern recognition, it's almost as though those people who are kind of pulling the strings of our experience are looking for the simplest and the most um, visceral patterns that we kind of have as a human organism in order to get the responses they want. So, so that would be the uh, the slot machine designer, you know, looking at the way that we're searching for patterns and whether the quarters are dropping out and then manipulating those to make us gamble more. Yes, I think that that is exactly right. And of course, you know, being applied to social media, you know, um, as you um, have, you know, communicated more more clearly than almost anyone is, you know, the the like and the oh the the whole thing that um, all the different flags appealing to our evolved human need for. Um, communal status, you know, for being recognized by others and those little hormonal impulses we get every time we feel, oh, somebody likes what I said or um, somebody mm-hmm. sees me. And um, so, yeah, I think if we if we sort of do an arc back over the centuries, at least over the last century or more, you know, you can see, you know, for example, in the 19th century, you see the rise of the novel and this kind of, you know, these deep investigations into the human experience and the connection with the reader is applying, is is connecting through that need that we have to communicate with each other, but at this deepest level of really feeling this recognition of a relationship that we're building with somebody. And as we move into the 20th century, we see this conscious manipulation of our uh, simpler drives in order to build the consumer machine, which has been only too successful in the last hundred years right now to where it's even, it's gotten to that simplest place of just second by second. What is it that gets the adrenaline going just enough to keep the addiction going um, <laughs> and to keep the positive feelings there? Um, and I do think that that is a, it's something we've seen trending further and further and further and something we have to be very aware of because it's it ultimately changes the human experience itself i mean but when i when i first encountered these technologies and these more you know fractious style experiences i wanted to celebrate because it seemed to me that we were finally getting away from you know Oedipus and Aristotle and hero worship, you know, the way that we identified with people before seemed to be by all focusing on some long haired rock star on the stage. And then as we moved towards, you know, rave and burning man and communal experiences, as we got away from hero worship and onto the internet, it felt as if we were going to begin looking at one another for that sense of connection rather than to some single hero. But then that all went wrong. Right. And the, you know, the thing is, I think what's important is when we look at 
new technologies is to look both at the new technologies themselves, what they offer, and then what the dominant powers are underlying those technologies that drive them in, certain, in one direction or another. And I right. think that we have to look at the context that these technologies evolve in this global capitalist set of rules, essentially, where um, the, the potential may exist in the technology for all kinds of wonderful human interaction, but the companies that are offering these technologies and optimizing them, they're not optimizing them for depth of human relationship. They're optimizing them for shareholder value, you know, for increasing profits and for shareholder returns. And I think we have to recognize no matter which, what technology we look at, no matter what domain we look at, um, the underlying sort of operating system, if you will, of these technologies is that global capitalist profit model, which mm. I believe uh, is really this um, massive force that um, for those of us who care about any kind of human flourishing, we have to both recognize and find ways to um, undo that power that it has over us. Right. I mean, in my work, really, for the last 10 or 15 years has been very much directed towards you know, unearthing the origins of these things, revealing the systemic biases, you know, really analyzing the political economy of capitalism. And I've you know, written the books and put out the facts and we've got Piketty and all these people. But where I finally gotten to at the end of this journey is almost back where I started in theater and and narrative saying wait a minute the the real problem here is not just capitalism and power but that we don't seem to have as as people we don't have metaphors for understanding the world as something other than this you know linear extractive progress oriented business that we're in Right. And that's really, you know, what a lot of my book and my work is about is, right. is both understanding the underlying metaphors that we use to make sense of the world in our modern era. And uh, just equally important to look at what other, what alternative metaphors might exist that could truly lead to a, a very different future, to a flourishing future and one of connectivity. And that's where I think I agree with you that that is so important and something that we don't really recognize because we're so used to thinking in these ways is this way in which we do make sense of the world based on uh, these core underlying metaphors, which I describe them sometimes as hiding in plain sight because they're right there in all the ways in which we make sense of things, all the ways in which we describe that we use language to talk about them. And yet, a lot of the time, we don't even realize that they aren't metaphors. We actually, mm. uh, we, we think that that's just the way it is, as opposed to being a construction we use to try to, to make sense of the world. Right. It becomes, well, if you're born into that metaphor, it just it becomes indistinguishable from nature when it's not yeah. at all. Exactly. Yeah, and one an example that I think is prevalent, and especially in the in, in the tech world, but really anywhere in our modern world today, is this notion of nature as a machine, um, which is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor that has been incredibly uh, valuable and led to all kinds of um, just amazing advances in science and technology over the last few hundred years. And has really become, it was so successful in its use as a metaphor that people um, really, um, all the way back from the 17th century, but uh, and, so, and now too, have actually lost sight of it being a metaphor and actually think that that is the case, that nature is a machine, when um, it just is... It could not be um, more false in terms of the reality of what nature is. Well, that's the, you know, I just had this conversation on the show with Annalie Newitz, a brilliant young 
uh, novelist who was also the founder of io9. She's a futurist. And she was arguing that, well, the way through climate change is to understand, quite literally, she said, that nature is a machine. Right. And that we can tweak different things. And she's a systems thinker. So she'll admit that it's a more complicated machine than your, your Ford engine is, but that nonetheless, there's inputs and outputs. It's a closed system. And we can change the inputs in order to uh, deliver us different outputs. Yes. And this is one of the things that I am spending a lot of my time really trying to uh, bring to light and sort of work against is this really this underlying false way of seeing things because it has implications. You know, uh, when people start to think that nature is actually a machine, well, it leads to things like when somebody comes up with solutions to climate change, like, uh, for example, geoengineering. Right. Then put iron no sure. why, why not? So then, then the only issue about geoengineering, there's no philosophical issue. There's no um, ultimate ethical or values issue. It's just a matter of, well, how well can we do it? You know, well, let's start testing now because 10, 20 years from now we might need it. And so, and that's the slippery slope that honestly I feel we're on. Uh, unless we do some real uh, transformational shifts in the underlying metaphor that we use to understand our place in, in the earth. Right. I mean, I keep going back to now to, to uh, Horkheimer's uh, Eclipse of Reason, this great little book where he argues that there's a difference between reason with a capital R and reason with a tiny r, and that, that we've lost touch with the, the values and narratives and ideals that we would use to organize our, our world, and instead are looking at how to instrumentalize very particular things. You know, so when you look at nature as a machine, you think, well, how can I optimize for this or optimize for that? without understanding it truly, uh, truly holistically. That is, that's absolutely right. And we see an example of the dangers of that in something like the, the so-called green revolution that, mm -hmm. again, it was based on this idea of nature as being a machine and then uh, just looked at, well, you know, why we have to feed billions more people. So the way we'll do that is by uh, just getting really good at, at putting out chemical fertilizer. And what happens is these, these sort of these solutions, because we live in such a complex interconnected web uh, of, of the natural world, the solutions that uh, come around from sort of reductionist machine thinking tend to lead to even greater problems as a byproduct, which are unforeseen. And so now we're looking at these things like the terrible dead zones in the oceans, looking at the fact that we're util using up our topsoil at such a rate that um, some United Nations scientists is thinking, uh, has stated that we may only have 60 years left of topsoil on, on the earth um, at this rate. And these are the things that we're doing um, because of this core underlying metaphor of nature as a machine that we can just solve with reduction of science. And instead, we're supposed to solve, obviously, in some other way. But what is that? So that's what I've... Put a, uh, spend a lot of my time working on to actually say what's an alternative metaphor. And in a way, the, my book, The Patterning Instinct, is a little bit like this detective story that unearths this metaphor. And it finds, it, it finds the roots of it all the way back to early indigenous cultures. And it finds a very sophisticated expression of this in traditional Chinese thought. And it finds it in modern times in the underlying the underlying sort of ontology, if you will, of systems thinking, complexity science, even network theory. And it's this recognition of uh, connectedness as opposed to separation. I think at the deepest, deepest layers, um, modern worldview, the one that's mainstream, is based on separation. Right. The word science is literally to, to cleft, to, yes. to split apart. Great, great point. Exactly. And, and also there's this separation of humans from nature and, and this separation of kind of reason from emotion, this whole sense that to understand things, we have to distill them and see them in their essential form. Basically, it's it comes from ultimately it's kind of sources in Plato and early Greek thinking about 2,500 years ago. So that's at this deepest layer. But then if you look at indigenous 
cultures, traditional Chinese culture and modern systems thinking, you see a different way of thinking, which is based on a sense of connection. And when you start to build a worldview on a sense of connection rather than separation, well, one place you get to is what I saw as the traditional Chinese core metaphor of the universe, which is really a harmonic web of life, totally different way of looking at things. So to give you a sense of what I mean by this, like imagine you're walking in a forest and you, know, you come across this um, big um, web, uh, a big you know, cobweb on a branch of a tree. And you know that if you took a, a, just, if you saw just a little drop of water dropping on it, or even just something as, as light as a leaf dropping on that web, you'd see the whole thing reverberate. That one tiny motion in one place has this set of um, vibrational resonance to every other part of it. And that's how the, the Chinese saw the ways in which humans interacted with the earth. That was much closer to the indigenous way. And a lot of modern systems thinking and system science sees the same thing, understands um, really taking a sort of deeper investigation of ecologies, recognizing that um, everything is interconnected. And that oftentimes when you try to, if you try to make one fix without looking at the whole holistic whole, you end up actually causing all kinds of unintended consequences for that reason. And this would be why why the ancient, uh, or not even so ancient, but why uh, in the magnificent story you tell, or Admiral Zheng of the Chinese, you know, why he had a, this magnificent armada, um, yet he didn't use it for conquest, whereas Columbus had three boats and ended up launching colonization. Yes. You know, it's, it's funny. I love that story because to my mind, that's iconic of this core theme that goes through the patterning instinct, which is that your know, culture shapes values and those values actually shape history. And what's so fascinating is when you look at that, you know, we all know that Columbus discovered the new, new world in 1492, but very few people even know about Admiral Zheng and the fact that he had this amazing fleet of 300 ships. And even you could have fit 10 of Columbus's boats in one of Zheng's boats. The technological chasm between <laughs> these two cultures, unbelievable. And earlier than Columbus, in the, but the, in that same century, early in the 15th century, he basically owned the Indian Ocean. For decades, he could go to East Africa, Arabia, Sri Lanka. And he was, he was viewed in some places as a god. There's even temples dedicated to him that still exist to this day because people couldn't believe the power that he had. But that's what's so amazing. He never, it never occurred to him to use that power to enslave the populations, to exploit their mineral resources, to create some sort of greater Chinese empire, um, you know, spanning the globe, because that's not how the Chinese thought about things. To them, power was just a means of maintaining equilibrium, maintaining a harmony in things uh, for basically, you know, for flourishing, for human flourishing in the world. And the Western uh, powers, the Europeans, when they discovered their um, their power from science you know there's this great quote from francis bacon the that knowledge itself is power and there was this recognition that we can use this power to exploit which is what they did to really disrupt equilibria rather than maintain equilibria and um, and that's really the story if you will of these last few hundred right. years now i've tried to blame this on our uh, the sort of either the Judeo-Christian understanding of time and progress and moving towards some you know uh, messianic age you know which which is a beautiful goal on a certain level to make the world a better place but you know you end up externalizing you kind of have a giant exhaust pipe of of damage that you leave behind you so it's either that or maybe it's it's capitalism because the the Renaissance nations they they develop local or, or they they outlawed local currency and forced people to use central currency, which had interest and that required growth and expansion and extraction? Or do you find it somewhere deeper in some deeper kind of mythological construct of the world that we had and that the, the Confucians did not? 
Yeah, and so that's what a lot of that detective story is about in The Patterning Instinct, is, is saying if you peel the onion, the layers of the ways in which we get meaning, what do you find in the end? And that's where, as I did that over a number of years, I ended up with this notion or this real recognition, if you will, of this human patterning instinct as something that makes humans unique among other mammals, that we have this instinct to a much greater degree than other mammals. And it's that instinct that led us to both make meaning out of the world and also to develop tools and to create these power imbalances between us and the rest of the world. So I think at the very, very outset, you need to say that and even when humans see themselves as being sort of integrally related to everything else, we have so much power over the natural world that we cause our own imbalances. So even hunter-gatherers uh, tens of thousands of years ago who saw nature as uh, the core metaphor for them was like nature as a giving mother and father. When they left Africa and moved to North and South America uh, and to other continents where the animals didn't know humans, they led to massive extinctions of megafauna, of the, of the big creatures on, the, uh, on, on, on these continents. So more than three quarters of the megafauna, fantastic exotic megafauna in North and South America, went extinct within a short period of humans arriving on those continents and in Australia even more so. So we have to recognize that humans cause these imbalances on the earth. But Right, and this is before yeah. this is way before we're conquistadors with muskets. This exactly. is just even regular exactly. people. So that is I mean I think that we have to the important thing about that is we have to recognize there was no sort of golden age when you know humans were living in this perfect harmony with the world and if only we could get back to that place or whatever. I think that's an important aspect to understand. But then we have to look at other stages um, because there's still a long way from that hunter-gatherer way of being to this current situation where really um, there's a lot of reasons to believe that we are um, heading directly towards a precipice and potentially the collapse of our of civilization and of course the sixth extinction the destruction of so much in the natural world so what happened and i do think there are stages you, there's not like one answer but i think the um, the rise of agriculture was a huge stage causing all kinds of very um levels of separation and new values in the human experience we didn't have before Right. We started to perceive of the earth, I mean, as this thing that you cut open and, and exploit. I mean, and, and the Bible understood this. I mean, this is why Cain's sacrifice is not accepted in Abel's is. You know, Cain gave grain that he grew. He gave plants where, where Abel gave a, a, an animal that he hunted. You know, so and God's like, wait a minute, <laughs> I have a problem with you sacrificing something that you yourself think you made. You know, so the, the whole Bible really is about how are we going to deal with an agricultural civilization and ownership and fences and exploitation and debt. You know, so do, do you feel like agriculture, it's hard to say it like this, but was agriculture just a wrong turn? Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny to think of it. Is it was it or with agriculture, we most definitely get a lot of elements of the human experience that we find so challenging to this very day. So, not just the sense of separation, but a sense of anxiety, anxiety that comes from the accumulation of wealth and then the fear of losing it, and the anxiety that comes from hierarchies and and the inequalities that develop. Right. And even the anxiety that comes from delayed gratification. Exactly. Because now we're planting something we're going to get later, which is so different than experiencing, you know, sort of uh, God or nature's grace more like mana, sort of as an always on available real time uh, bounty. Exactly. Um, and there's this, this Buddhist notion of dukkha, which is sometimes translated as suffering, but really you can almost see it as what arises from agriculture, from, from this, all these ways in which we're separated from our reality, and both in time, just like you said, and in um, the wanting more for the future and fearing what we can lose. All these, all these levels come from, from agriculture. So there's a lot to argue for what you 
and say that in that sense agriculture is the wrong turn. And there's even one anthropologist who you know, who argues that hunter gatherers mm-hmm. actually um, had the affluent lifestyle. It's what, what he calls the the Zen approach to affluence because when you don't need so much. And you're affluent because you already have what you need. Right. And in fact, a lot of hunter-gatherers and studies have shown that they generally spend only a few hours of the day on their subsistence needs. And most of the time they're spent doing just what they feel like doing. So you, you can say that to some degree, but then you also have to be aware of the fact that, say, um, when you're in a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle, when somebody gets, uh, gets sick or um, gets injured or whatever, what do they do? And a lot of the time, uh, what happens is they have to just get left behind. And there's like high degrees of infanticide, for example, because it might not be the right time to bring in a new a new infant into the into the group or whatever. So we have to recognize that it's not. Again, I I, I hesitate about painting hunt together at times as a golden age, but I do think it's very valuable in our life today to recognize so many of the things that we take for granted that we just think is the natural human experience is only the result of the last 12,000 years uh, since agriculture first emerged. So it, it may be less a matter of, uh, you know, rejecting agriculture altogether than thinking, well, shoot, maybe we should have, uh, maybe we should have been more conscious when we were adopting agriculture of, you know, how it's going to change, <laughs> change a whole lot of things other than how we're getting our, our plans. And what's so interesting is that what has become pretty clear from uh, anthropologists looking at this stuff is that nobody really invented agriculture. It's not like anybody ever at some point said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's just kind of stay put and work hard and plant crops and weed them and keep put fences up. And, and uh, it actually is something that kind of self-organized just through people dropping seeds around them that actually ended up being more fertile for them to eat the food, but required them to have to work hard to keep the, keep those kind of crops away from the wild. And it's, it's this kind of self-organized thing. So um, the same with animals. When we domesticated animals, uh, over generations, we kind of naturally selected for those animals that were meeker and weren't so wild so we could manage them. But then they couldn't look after themselves. So suddenly we had to start protecting them from the wild. And that's how ag- agriculture emerged into our world. It wasn't a a choice anybody made. But I think we also have to look beyond agriculture at um, other steps that got taken. And to some degree, there are steps that are more recent in history and steps that we can change. We can shift through our conscious thought. Because I, I would hate anybody to get the impression from what I'm saying that, well, this is just the human condition. There's nothing we can do about it. Because I do believe there are things we can do that consciously right. shift our, our way of making meaning that can lead us to a different future. Exactly. Other than going back to a exactly. pre-agricultural exactly. stage of humanity. Right. It's funny, the other thing that you were making me think, though, when you were when you were talking about how we favored weaker species and that you know created a culture of dependence – uh, or a, a, a biology of dependence, um, it sounds also a little bit like the libertarian argument against the welfare state, you know, or even a Trumpian argument against any race other than Western white Europeans, you know, that these people lost, you know, <laughs> we beat them fair and square. And why are we having universities that are promoting the cultures of these people who have, have lost in the Darwinian battle for survival? Right, but I think that what we actually see in human evolution is that what really makes us human, what what really defines us as humans, is the exact opposite of what those kind of Trumpian uh, way uh, advocates say. That it's actually our ability to cooperate, our ability to work together, to do what's called um, by some anthropologists shared intentionality, and it's the values. Mm-hmm. Um, 
like a sense of fairness um, and feelings like compassion and altruism that really separate humans from the other primates. So in a way, when people make these arguments, those kind of Trumpian ways of looking at things, it's as though they're arguing for an atavistic value system that is really more aligned with chimpanzees, um, orangutans, and gorillas than modern, than as humans as we've evolved these last really couple of million years. So then if what we're trying to do is to, to elevate human consciousness into, uh, or certainly Western human consciousness, into something more um, holistic and connected and integral and systemic, what, are, what do you see as the steps to, to get there? Well, I think the first step that each of us can do is to look at our own ways of making meaning in the world and recognize some of these deeper underlying ways in which each of us are part of this, this kind of worldview based on separation. You know, to recognize when we um, say something or think something in a way that implicitly sees nature as a machine or something that implicitly sees us as being separate from nature. And I think these are some of the ways in which we can, by, by beginning to look at the underlying ways in which the messages that come to us have those implicit um, structures of thought, that helps us to break free ourselves from this kind of um, sense of separation. And it allows us to focus on connection. And I see uh, the things that we can do individually and, uh, and together is to really focus on our connectivity with others in community and our connectivity with all of humanity. And very much recognizing that once we see we're part of nature, not try to kind of fix nature as if it's an engineering problem, but to say, how can we flourish in that kind of harmonic web of life with the natural world or with the rest of the natural world? Because we ourselves are natural. Right. I mean, you tell the story basically in the book, and I don't think I'm... I'm giving away any spoilers here. I mean, you explain first how, how we emerge into a world where everything is connected. And this there's this sort of Aboriginal indigenous awareness of that connection. And then there's a, a patterning of meaning that goes along with that. But then we start dividing things. We have this hierarchy of the gods and a, 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 a land ownership and uh, um, you know, that the gods are somehow separate from humans. And, and then we split, you know, then we have the Western pattern of splitting the cosmos and the Eastern pattern, which I guess is still split, but it's a more harmonious split of, of components, mm -hmm. you know, and then finally we move into this conquest of nature phase where we're reaching the end of that, where nature's rearing its head back at us. And, and finally, we get to what you're, what you're aspiring to now, or at least on our behalf, which is this new web of meaning. So, But the new web of meaning, the place we get to now, it's not that we're just going back to the Aboriginal sensibility. Otherwise, we just should have stayed there. <laughs> yes. I mean, is there, there's some notion of there's something more dimensional about where we're trying to get to, isn't there? I think that's, that is so true. I'm really glad you raised that point, Douglas, is, is that the, what we can do is when we look at the past and we look at different uh, cultures in history, there's certainly a great deal we can learn from them. And we can learn the sort of the indigenous sense of really being um, part of this kind of natural family. We can learn from the traditional Chinese, some the most sophisticated thinking about cause about the cosmos that ever existed came from the Song dynasty in China about a thousand years ago where they really looked at what it meant to recognize themselves as being in as being interconnected with nature but at the same time and this is where I find so exciting the underlying insights of modern systems thinking, recognizing that nature itself is a self-organized entity, recognizing that we as humans, by, um, in, by everything we do with the world around us is actually interpenetrating with it. It's, it's not separate from it. And that this modern systems way of thinking is actually analogous to those traditional insights. 
And this whole way of looking at things, looking at this kind of networked reality, the sense that meaning itself arises from the network, meaning arises from our connectivity, is a different, it leads to a different worldview on a, a different foundation than this reductionist um, worldview of separation that has become mainstream today. And that's why I feel what's so important is not to look backwards, but to gain some of the treasures of the insights from earlier cultures and see how that traditional wisdom can apply to our modern, uh, rigorous, scientific-oriented way of looking at things. So it's not a matter of right. um, science versus spiritual meaning or Western versus Eastern or whatever. It's a matter of integrating the very best that we can from history and modern thinking to offer something that I think can lead us to long-term flourishing, a, a very different worldview, a different paradigm than the last 2,500 years of Western thought. Right. It's a, it, it's not a, a return so much as a retrieval, you know, right. or a renaissance, you know, you rebirth these old forms in the new context of, of science and permaculture and civilization and all what, you know, all that we have. Exactly. Yeah. I love that word retrieval because that is just how, how it is. Um, and permaculture is a perfect example of something that is a modern uh, way of uh, looking at real sustainable way of working with nature for our own, for both our own sustainable flourishing and for the natural environment where we're with. And it draws from some of the oldest indigenous insights that are out there. So that's a perfect example of the kind of ways in which we can move forward. And you see technology as part of this, not something yes. to be rejected. I do. I do. I think that um, there. There are all kinds of reasons why we can't reject technology. Um, one is that uh, this is what uh, the human experience is. I mean, even from our earliest times, what really was part of our sort of defining human uh, emergence was using technology. And to, to throw that out is to just essentially give up on the human project. And secondly, you know, there's no a vision for the future that's going to excite new generations of people rising up that tries to reject technology. It just, it's just doesn't make any sense. The question is, how can we use technology in a way that allows that kind of flourishing? I think this is a huge question. And I think that, uh, I think the possibilities exist there, but I think that we can't divorce the technology from, again, just what we were saying earlier on, on the underlying context of the capitalist infrastructure that the technology is arising in. Right. The technology is, is just a, a, a means to uh, a, an efficient end rather, <laughs> rather than a, a path towards some sort of greater consciousness or connectivity or, or flourishing. Yes. And, and, you know, whenever I see, uh, for example, people getting very excited about the blockchain technology, or uh, people getting excited about what's available through the, the very fact of the internet and the fact that we are, for the first time in all of human history, we have this ability to connect with each other in a way that was unimaginable until just a couple of decades ago. And I, I think these are fantastic opportunities. And at the same time, well, we've seen with the internet and um, we and now as the blockchain begins to develop, we see similar kind of threats. Any of these ideas can be taken up by the whole uh, global capitalist uh, sort of neoliberal model and subverted to just basically add more profits to, uh, you know, to a few billionaires. Right. And the, the new technologies just become, you know, ever more complicated ways of reducing our world still further. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is the danger. But at the same time, I, I basically, I still find myself very hopeful about the possibilities of the internet in general, mm. because it does, to me, I, I actually see the emergence of the internet as perhaps as big a transition in the human experience as the emergence of language, and maybe even bigger than the emergence of writing. I mean, really, really huge phase transition in the human experience. Because we have to realize that what the internet that we're experiencing right now in the last decade or two is 
potentially just the very first hint of the kind of connectivity that may be available, you know, through the the sense of neural networks connecting up. And uh, right now, people are experimenting with the sense of sort of um, use of implants. But before too long, it's not inconceivable that we'll be able to go beyond uh, just sharing words, video, and, and kind of visual and oral stuff to being able to share things like emotional content with each other through the internet. And when that happens, again, we're going to be looking at the, the exceeding danger that that's that great sort of breakthrough in human connectivity, again, gets manipulated and used by the kind of Facebooks of the future looking to profit from that. But it also allows for this possibility of a kind of a self-organized emergent entity uh, a, a true human superorganism that could, without losing our individuality, could enable us to be connected in a way that we could only just barely dream of right now. Well, and that was the original internet dream, you know, and people, you know, quote, you know, Deschardins and a lot of these, uh, uh, it's almost a, a, you know, eschatological uh, vision, but that we all somehow turn into this big you know the the rave, <laughs> the rave kids. You know, connecting into one colonial organism. You know, the the question then I have is always, you know, are our social and digital media the means through which we will do that, or are they in some ways the practice run for uh, an innate ability that we could do without any of this technology at all? I love that idea of the some innate ability that we can do without technology at all. And of course, we, we, we have that right now in our um, core evolved way of relating to each other. So, you know, if imagine if you just have a room of a number of few people and you walk into the room, if you are at a deeper layer of connecting, you can feel that presence. You can feel the energy flows of, um, of connecting with other people. But I do think, um, and you know, in a sense, that's the deeper way in which we connect with each other. It's something that anthropologists sometimes call mimetic culture. Um, and it's the mm. ways in which humans related to each other for millions of years before we even developed language. So we do have that deeper way of connecting. But I do think it's limited, of course, to in spatial and space to those people that we are close to right now. And there's also this way in which we filter the experiences we see through people through our own cognitive lenses and sort of see them using our patterning instincts, see them in the ways that, that only, you know, we only get to experience. So when I have empathic experience with somebody else, it feels like I'm feeling what they're feeling. And to some degree that's true, but I'm also feeling uniquely what I'm feeling. I'm not actually feeling what they're feeling. And I, but I do think that it's not, I don't think it's, it's sort of falling into the techno utopian pitfalls to recognize that technology may offer the potential for a more profound and a more wide-ranging way of human connection than has ever been dreamt of before. But I, when I say that, I think we have to be so aware of the dangers that can arise from that too, if we still, if that technology evolves in this same global capitalist model that we're in right now. I find uh, you know, maybe one of the most valuable things in the patterning instinct for me is the ample defense it provides for humanity itself. You know, I the 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 biggest obstacle I've had, the biggest challenge I've had in in this team human project is defending humanity on on two two ways against two fronts. On um, first, there's the sort of Ray Kurzweil singularity front that says there's nothing so special about humans that can't be just uploaded to a chip or recreated by an artificial intelligence, and then the other side that says, well, look, human beings have overstayed their welcome on this planet. They're basically a cancer on nature. And if they go extinct, well, good riddance, um, <laughs> which is it's all between I a mean, rock and a hard place. Yes. But you're a fellow celebrant of the, the, the patterning instinct that makes human beings so special. It's true. And I do think that both the uh, the Kurzweil and the sort of human as cancer approaches, um, totally, they lead in completely the wrong directions for the potential for flourishing. Um, I mean, the, 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 the Kurzweil approach, 
I find that um, actually in my book, I go, I look at his ideas and I think they're just so wrongheaded. They're based on this, uh, again, a, a wrong metaphor of humanity. They're based on this dualistic understanding of humans as being this separate mind and body. Only mm. for, for Kurzweil, the mind and body separation comes to be software and hardware. And the he's got this kind of notion that, well, maybe he can sort of download the software to different hardware and then upload it to an, a new piece of hardware. And it's based on, um, this is one of these places where the metaphor um, is wrong. And um, I just feel kind of sad for him when one day he does die and he hopes that he's going to be immortal and it's just not going to happen because he's going in the wrong direction. But I do think, like you say, the, the kind of humanist cancer metaphor is also, it's so self-defeating. And it does lead to this notion of, well, we should just give up on the human project because we've, <laughs> we've been so bad for the world. Um, and I think that what we have to recognize is that you know, humans are actually not going anywhere. I mean, unless we end up uh, with uh, causing some nuclear uh, global holocaust, which just basically puts an end to all complex life on this earth, humans are going to survive this particular crisis we're in. The, the danger is that, we, that if our civilization collapses, we may survive in some kind of ongoing agrarian uh, place where we lose all the, um, you know, all the kind of enhancements to life that technology has brought. And, you know, again, there's no golden age. Agrarian civilization was not such a good place. It was filled with hierarchy, mm. with patriarchy, with slaves, with um, pack animals. Oh, warlords and yeah, rape and exactly. abuse. Yeah. That, that is not a place. And, and if we were to actually be condemning uh, humans for millennia into the future, for sort of untold millennia and into that kind of place, we'd be doing a terrible, terrible thing to future generations. And I think we have to be aware of that because this scientific project that's happened is only, it can only happen once in this earth because it took place because of the sort of easy pickings of, uh, yeah, of metals and fuels, uh, mm. fossil fuels and everything else that brought us to the place we're at right now. So if we lost this civilization, there's no more easy pickings. There won't be those kind of fuels and metals and that are easily available like they were to earlier times. And I think right, there won't even be topsoil. Exactly. Right. And that's a, a huge responsibility we have to look at. It's not excessive to say that the entire future of of the human race for untold millennia to come, it probably rests in the hands of the choices, values, and decisions we make this generation and the next generation. Which is why I guess people should, what, they should sit more, do more Tai Chi and yoga? Uh, <laughs> I would certainly I mean, recommend that. I think that's one very good approach. Um, I mean, but, if we're not coherent, we're not going to make appropriate decisions. Yeah, exactly. We need to, I think this comes back again to this notion of, of connection and integration. First, we have to be more connected with ourselves. We have to get more in touch with what it is, what our values really are. Because the values that are inculcated in us from the mass media, uh, from the social media and from television and commercials and everything, to status, consumer lifestyle, those are not our true values. For almost all of us, that's not what we really want, but we're so divorced from that that we don't even have time to check in on ourselves. And I do think that's a foundational place. But I think it's equally a mistake to then say, well, you know, I'm doing my part. I'm connecting with myself. And I'm uh, like a spiritual bypassing where you then disconnect with what's going on in the world around you. We have to recognize that we are deeply embedded in society around us, that the suffering of people um, in the global South uh, actually is, um, is directly and indirectly related to the affluence that we enjoy in the West. We have to recognize that the mass extinctions going on in the earth right now are directly related to the rise of human civilization and the, uh, and the, consum the this consumer lifestyle. And we have to engage both in community and in the larger structural and political layers, um, if we're going to be authentic with that experience of connectivity. 
right to join team human you got it <laughs> absolutely i'm with you douglas <laughs>on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.